0: So, we are doing uh, another week on dating, Um, and if this isn't enough, you can bring even more questions. Um, We did get some questions, and a lot of tonight is I'm I'm just going to kind of go through some of these sorts of things. I'm glad that we sang so many great songs that are rich in the gospel. Um, This really, uh, this whole series, we're entitling Gospel Driven Relationships, uh, really the good news of what Jesus has done should set us free to love well, not just God, but other people. Because when you have the security that the love of God can bring, the love of God that has been secured by what Jesus did on the cross, it really enables you to live in such a way that you don't have to get all of your joy out of what this life can give. And if it's not, for that, it's really difficult to live in healthy relationships. Um, a friend of mine used to use the, the illustration, if without the love of God, you know, it's so often that our relationships are like two ticks on a dog with no dog. <laughs> Trying to suck the life out of each other, right? It's a, it's a wonderful image, let that stick with you. <laughs> We don't want that image. We want the love of God to fill us up. This is why in 1 John, it says that we love because he first loved us. And it goes on to say, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. There's too many worn out Christians trying to rely on their love for God and thinking that worship is a pep rally to keep your feelings up to a level where you can rely on your love. And that doesn't work very well, doesn't work for long. Um, we need to know and rely on the love that God has for us. And this love, John says in 1 John, um, is the way, the reason that we can love. Like I said last week, I think, that we're like the moon, not like the sun. We don't generate light. We don't generate love, we reflect it to the degree that we're basking in and drinking in the love of God. So, we're gonna talk in light of that, uh, a few more thoughts about, about dating. and. Um, You know, I think what's interesting is to think about like, you know, when I was, I mean, we did have the newlywed game on TV, but not all the dating kind of games that we have now. And I just wonder how much that affects even the way we think about these things. Thinking about, so last week I talked about how sometimes we pursue relationships, like we're shopping for a used car, trying to find the best deal that we can get. And I've got a list of like, Ten qualities I'm looking for and this person has like seven or eight of them and I've never met anybody that had more than five or six so I better, you know, I better seal the deal here But I think one of the other things that plays into the way we think about life is the idea that This game or this competition or even thinking like God's will like trying to figure out Who does he have for me to marry if that's what you think you're called to like who is it? And how do I figure it out? Um, you can go back and listen to a podcast that I did last year on knowing God's will, um, because I think that that plays into a lot of the issues that are going on with dating. But I remember, I, I, I remember what I said last night, the purpose of dating, sorry, last week, the purpose of dating is to be blessed and to be a blessing. And wouldn't it be great if we competed to be the best at that? what do i mean by that somebody asked that question could you flesh out what does it mean to be blessed that means to receive a blessing and to be a blessing that that i think is really the goal in dating because that's the goal in all human relationships and dating is not some special kind of relationship where you don't have to actually live in other words, to, to lift up other people. It's just like every other relationship you're supposed to be in. You are to be blessed to be a blessing, right? So I think one of the passages that really helps me think about this is in Galatians 4.19. And you can look at it if you want, but I'll, I'll summarize what it, what it says there. But Paul basically writes this letter to people that he literally didn't intend to preach the gospel to the galatians he was just going to pass through and he came down with some kind of illness we're not sure exactly what it was but it might have had something to do with his eyes because he says basically when i was with you like you treated me like i was jesus himself you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me so great was your love for me and their love for one another but after paul left some other false teachers came in and started teaching the people that you actually have to work really hard to keep God's smile. Yes, you may have begun with grace. I mean, you couldn't have started any other way, but after you get into a relationship with God with grace, well, then you really better toe the line. Uh, And I think a lot of Christians basically feel this way. And what's fascinating in the letter to the Galatians is you see the connection between the horizontal relationships we have and the vertical relationship. Because Paul says, you've lost all your joy In other words you've lost your joy because you've lost sight of the reason that you have relationship with God is by grace it'll always be about grace it'll never not be about grace and when you lost that and when you felt like it was up to you to keep God smile it started to filter into all your other relationships and he says basically now you're biting and devouring one another because you're trying to get the security you're demanding the security you can only get from God from other people And it will always go sour, right? And so what he says there in Galatians 4.19 is I wish I didn't have to write this letter to you. I'm perplexed. I love that the Apostle Paul says he's perplexed and he doesn't know what to do. And he says that he's in the agony of childbirth until Christ is formed in the Galatians. I think that's a great picture to think about what does love look like what do healthy relationships look like it looks like groaning is in the pains of childbirth until christ is formed in the people that you're in relationship with now that doesn't mean that you always just flatter them and pump them up uh, because i think if you go actually to john chapter one it says that jesus came from the father full of grace and truth full of grace and truth we often think of jesus as one or the other kind of depending on our temperament or how we're feeling about ourselves. I like a gracious Jesus. Oh yeah, well I like a Jesus who tells people how they're wrong all the time. No, you don't get to pick because the true Jesus is full of grace and truth. And any time people taste from us the character of God, that's what it should feel like. Grace and truth. And they should feel that we long for Christ to be formed in them. That's what I mean when I say be blessed and be a blessing. Not to live for what you can get out of the relationship, but for what you can give to another. Now I know that there can be codependency and all that kind of stuff. That's actually not loving another person, that's loving the way you feel needed by that other person, which is a very different thing. right? Well, let me just move into this main thing of what I want to talk about tonight. The problems with most Christian books on dating, and there are a lot of Christian books on dating, and most of them are really bad right? I think one of the reasons they're bad is one of the reasons, well, it's one of the reasons that a lot of Christian books are really bad, is they teach sort of a view of Christianity that's not real life. It's what we call super spirituality. It's the idea that we should so focus on being the right person rather than looking for the right person. And that sounds so wonderfully spiritual, except the Bible says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Whenever the Bible says something's a good thing, you should exert some effort toward it. Now again, we're gonna talk about marriage, and I'm not saying that every one of you needs to make that your sole obsession right now. But don't call something not good that God has called good just because you think it's more spiritual to not have longings and real desires. In 1 Timothy chapter four, Paul talks about something that he calls a doctrine of demons taught by hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared like a, by, by a hot iron. It's one of the strongest denunciations in any of the, the places in the Bible. And you might ask, what is it that these false teachers were teaching that deserves that kind of critique? Well, they're teaching people to abstain from marriage and certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. In other words, they're teaching that the more miserable you are, and the less you actually enjoy real life, the more spiritual you are. And Paul calls that a doctrine of demons. And he tells Timothy, if you point this out to the brethren, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And why is it a doctrine of demons? Because, Paul says there, 1 Timothy 4, you can look this up later, it's because God created this world to be received with thanksgiving. It's not more spiritual to pretend that you don't need anything or need anybody because God created us to be in relationship with him and with others. God said even before sin was in the world, when he looked at Adam in the garden, it's not good that man is alone. And yet we constantly seem to think that we don't really need anybody except Jesus and that we're more spiritual. The spiritual giants are the people who are content with nobody else in their life. That's not true, that's what we call super spirituality. The other problem with a lot of these books is they're full of rules. Uh, Christian counselor Dan Allender, I really recommend anything that he writes, um, has a book uh, called Bold Love, which is a great book if you're trying to love people that are difficult to love. And he actually lays out like particular strategies for how to love different kinds of difficult people. And it's a really helpful book. Um, But he talks in there about the simpleton approach to the Christian life. The simpleton approach to the Christian life basically refers to people who want a little formula or a little set of rules that are guaranteed to make life work. And uh, and I think a lot of these books basically do that because we all kind of want that. We all kind of want some expert to tell us what to do. Uh, I can't tell you what the Bible says about dating because the Bible does not speak about dating. But I can speak about lots of principles that bear upon relationships like dating. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. I think the other thing that's a problem with a lot of these books is not just the simpleton approach to life, thinking you can boil it down to little rules, but also a disturbing lack of grace. Here's one from a book called Choosing God's Best. Even the name of that book makes my skin crawl. I remember talking to the author one time about it, saying, well, how do you actually know um, what God's best is? And he says, well, I think you pray about it and God just sort of like, gives you peace in your heart. I said, really? I find that not really a very reliable way because Jesus prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane and he sure didn't feel peace in his heart, but he knew it was God's will to go to the cross. So I'm not sure that's the best method. But you can listen to my Proverbs 16 sermon on knowing God's will if you want to explore that some more or get coffee We can talk about it, but listen to this. Here's here's what he says in this book. We adjust our lives to God So that he can do through us what he wants to do God is not our servant To make adjustments to our plans. We are his servants and we adjust our lives to what he's about to do Now you might think that sounds pretty good We adjust our lives to God so that he can do through us what he wants to do. But that's horrendous theology, guys. It's horrendous theology. It's also a recipe for despair if you believe that God can't or won't change you until you change yourself. You remember the Jews, they planned to make Jesus king by force. And Peter told Jesus, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to die. It's a good thing Jesus didn't have to wait until they changed before he could do what he wanted. that's all I'm gonna say, you are without hope if Jesus or if God can't work until you change. That is without hope, and it sounds good until you think about it a little bit, and you understand who you actually are, and how weak you actually are, and how twisted your desires actually are. You need God to come to the rescue, that's what grace is. All right, so in light of that, I wanna talk about A term you've probably never heard before. Anyone ever heard the term casuistry? No, so you learned a new word. Casuistry is a fancy word that means cases of conscience. And and this is the way people did theology about 400 years ago. They would pose questions and then they would answer them. And sometimes they would train young preachers this way. They'd say, so-and-so, why don't you preach a sermon on can a man marry his second cousin? oh, I don't know, I'm gonna to have to search the scriptures on that, yes, you got a week, preach a sermon next week. They would do that, right? Well, I don't, I'm not gonna cover that one, you know, tonight. Um, but I am gonna talk about a bunch of these cases of conscience with to dating, issues that come up, questions that people have, right? And I hope that this will be helpful. So here's one of the things to think about in dating and in marriage. Some of this blurs over into marriage, okay? Even though I don't believe that the purpose of dating is marriage, I think it's generally the step that leads to marriage for most people. Not everybody, but most people. Um, Here's the thing. Friendship in marriage is the primary thing. Second is sexual attraction. Being one flesh with somebody is about more than sex, It's about joining lives together as we seek the advancement of God's kingdom in this world. That means you want to marry someone if you both believe that you're better for the kingdom together than apart. Because the call to singleness is a legitimate calling. I preached a whole sermon on that, remember? But if you would say, I believe God might be calling me to be married, then you need to understand that the purpose is for the advancement of the kingdom. Whenever I do weddings, my little sermon that I always preach, I always say marriage is for more than just two. It's not just for the two of you that you've found each other and now you can huddle together for the rest of your lives. No, it really is to be a kingdom resource, the two of you together advancing the kingdom. That's what Adam and Eve were called to do in the garden before sin came into the world. They were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to take the God-glorifying, cultivated part of the cosmos the garden, the cultivated part, and extend it to the ends of the earth. And when we are reunited to God through Christ, we're actually put back on that same agenda. The purpose for which God created us and created the world is restored and renewed. Yet the thing is, Tim Keller makes this point, and I think it's true, most of us, when we walk into a room of people of the opposite sex, immediately eliminate 90% of them as possible dating partners because of what they look like. And that's really backwards. We look for people that turn us on and then we see if we can make them our friends. I think it would be wiser to consider who you could grow old with and enjoy getting to know for the next 50 years. Now friends are found by a mutual love for something. C.S. Lewis talks about in his book The Four Loves. Friends are like side by side. I see this, do you see it too? And marriage is both face-to-face, lovers are face-to-face, friends are side-by-side. Marriage is both, friends are side-by-side, and it's actually helpful if you want to find a friend to maybe do more than just face-to-face romantic things on dates, See, that's the connection here. Like, I always encourage people, do the kinds of things on dates that will elicit the formative stories of people's lives. Because those formative stories really are how you get to know one another. What are the stories that shaped you, the good and the hard? And how will you um, put yourself in a situation where those stories might come to the surface? That's really so important in getting to know people and in building um, real friendship. Um, Physical attraction, though, is not irrelevant, all right? When Adam first sees Eve, he literally breaks out into poetry, okay? So the Bible is not opposed to that. And if you haven't read the Song of Solomon, you should read it sometime. It's almost embarrassing. It has been embarrassing to a lot of people. A lot of Christians over the centuries have thought this can't be about physical human love. It has to be an allegory for how we relate to God. I think it's both, actually. And and I actually believe that God created marriage to teach us about his love. He didn't look down and say, oh, look at this quaint custom these human beings have. I can work with that. No, it says that he created marriage to teach us about his love. That's Ephesians 5. We'll talk about that later. But even though beauty and physical attraction are not irrelevant, the Bible says that flattery is a snare. Now, that's a really interesting thing. Flattery is a snare. In other words, people that flatter you are trying to trap you. And and so someone who only cares about your looks and regularly praises you for that alone is building a kind of dependence that will in the end make you more and more dependent on maintaining your looks. Nobody wants to go into a marriage believing that they better maintain their looks or else. Nobody wants that. So there better be something more than just physical attraction. Another, another point. Not relevant at all to that other one. Um, just completely out of the blue. Talk through weirdness. This is one of my mantras of life. Talk through weirdness. There are two interpretations to every event. It's so frustrating to me watching almost every light like, TV sitcom in the 70s. Because they all were about misunderstandings and nobody would actually talk about it, right? And I find that happens all the time in relationships. It's like junior high. You know, you, people are like trying to read each other, read these signals, and you're not talking about it. Right? And, and so it's like, you know, maybe, maybe somebody asks you out, and then they don't call you for three days. And you're like, well, I guess that didn't go very well. But maybe they're thinking, man, I really, really like this person. I don't want to become on too strong. And nobody's talking. And so you're both misunderstanding what's being, trying to be communicated. Now the problem is, like, guys, girls know that you're not very good at communicating or picking up signals. But the other problem is girls think they're better at it than they are. And, and that's really, you know, it's really true. Because I'll, I'll talk to people on both sides of things, I'll be like, these people are completely missing each other, you know? And, and I'll, I'll tell you, I think that, that sometimes the guys like don't try to communicate and they just kind of are kind of passively depending on the girl to kind of pick up on things. Just communicate. Talk through weirdness, talk through weirdness, right? Um, But at the same time, beware of too many DTR talks. You know what that is? That's a define the relationship talk. Just enjoy the relationship. Most relationships, I think, go south when you have endless DTR talks because they generally are coming out of a place of insecurity and wanting to make sure you're not investing in something that isn't gonna be guaranteed. That's usually a bad sign and usually isn't gonna work very well. If you're doing DTR talks endlessly to try to eliminate risk and achieve a sense of control, check your motivation. Now, I do think there are times when you need to say, are we still on the same page? You know, I think they're, they're, I'm not saying don't ever do them, but check your motivation. Check your motivation. Don't make the relationship the focus. One of the quickest ways to fall out of love is to focus on the relationship instead of the other person. And that goes with other people, it also goes with God. I, I love this uh, letter from a guy named William Romaine. This is uh, actually an 18th century pastor. Um, he wrote this letter to a friend who was really kind of feeling very insecure in his relationship with God. And he kind of diagnoses the problem. He says, here's the problem. You're looking not at the object of your faith, at Jesus, but you're looking at your faith. You would draw your comfort not from him, but from your faith. And because your faith is not quite perfect, you are as much discouraged as if Jesus was not quite a perfect savior. But besides this mistake, I can see one of the greatest sins in your way of reasoning, and yet finely cloaked under a very spacious covering, I pulled it off, and behold, there was rank treason under it against the crown and majesty of my Lord and God, for you are kept looking at your act of believing. What is this for? Why, certainly, that you may be satisfied with it. What then? No doubt you will then rest in it, and upon it, satisfied now that Christ is yours because you're satisfied with your faith. This is making a Jesus of it. It's making a Jesus of your faith. It is, in effect, taking the crown of crowns from his head, and placing it upon the head of your faith. Lord, grant that you may never do this anymore. I think that's a really perceptive thing because I think a lot of people are looking at their prayer life or they're looking at their Bible reading or they're just looking at, there's so many problems with your faith, (laughs) but there's no problems with Jesus. And you are to be looking at Jesus, not at your, don't have constant DTR talks with Jesus, in other words. It's taking the focus off where it needs to be. And that's a big deal. All right, what about God's will? Finding your one soulmate. I I think you have to be very careful how you invoke the idea of God's will. Unless you can look back at something that happened or it's written in scripture. I think everything else is tentative when it comes to God's will. Does God have a plan for if you'll marry and who it will be? I believe of course he does. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's Ephesians chapter one. However, that doesn't mean you know what the plan is. Proverbs 16, verse one, and this is my sermon on knowing God's will, says that God is sovereign and our actions matter. Rather than focusing on is this the one, which is what the soulmate kind of idea makes you do, you should be thinking in terms of would this be a good person to pursue? To get to know, maybe even marry one day. Looking for a soulmate and thinking that one finite human being is that soulmate puts too much pressure on any actual broken sinful person. You complete me is not something any human being can do. It was never meant to be that way, right? And honestly, you know, there's, I, I was listening to a podcast that my wife um, turned me on to a while back as we were getting ready to do this series. It was very helpful. Like The, the, the research is clear That what's really changed today as opposed to 100 years ago is people's expectations from a spouse. That they would be the soulmate, the best friend, everything all rolled into one person in ways that nobody actually used to uh, expect. And it's it's not very helpful, it's not very helpful. Um, I I think this one, you know, I, I don't wanna go too far into unhelpful stereotypes, but we still live in a culture where generally in guy-girl relationships, the guys, the girls usually want some kind of pursuit. Um, I do think there is something helpful about being clear about your intentions and owning it so that the other person doesn't feel like they're constantly being auditioned. Because you know what? When you're auditioned, you're very self-conscious all the time. Now, that doesn't mean that right off from the bat, you have an idea of your intentions. But I do think, again, talk through weirdness. You know, I, I think it can be helpful. And I would just say this, often the adrenaline rush of the pursuit is equated with love. And that's a big mistake. The adrenaline rush of, will she go out with me? Will she let me hold her hand? Will she let me kiss her? Like, all of that is kind of exciting, right? In that whole dating thing. But that is not love. And the adrenaline rush of being pursued is not the same. And thus sometimes when it becomes like, well of course, like we've been dating for like two years, so of course we're gonna go out Friday night. It, there's like no like, I wonder if, you know, there's none of that anymore, and it can feel like, like the, all, the spark is gone. That's when you realize that the adrenaline rush is not what makes a relationship work. But I also don't think it's a sin for a woman to ask a guy out, because it doesn't say that in the Bible. Now, here's what you've got to understand, of course, is um, there are cultural expectations to come into play. So what I talked about last week. The rules are all sort of thrown up out the window, and so who knows? Like some, some guys, some girls may have very strong feelings about this. All I'll say is it's not sin if the Bible doesn't call it sin. But you may be going up against the grain of somebody's cultural expectation. And again, if you are, you might have to talk through it. Right, But I really do feel like, over the years, I've just seen so many girls and guys, they're good friends, and the girl really feels like she would like to to pursue a relationship more than just friends, but feels like she's not allowed to say something. I just think that's kind of silly. But it also may not work. You never know, there's no guarantee, right? Um, All right, this is something that I'm a little more clear about. What about dating non-Christians? Well, it's a tricky question because the Bible doesn't talk about dating but the Bible definitely says you shouldn't marry non-Christians. The Bible's really clear on that. It's in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, about not being unequally yoked. Um, I did hear a helpful distinction one time from Tim Keller, who's pastored in New York for many years, so he had a lot of single people in his church, and a lot of them would have to go to like work events where you were supposed to bring a date, and so he would distinguish between Uh, something where you are taking somebody because you have to have a date for the event and he would say that doesn't seem to matter as much if you take somebody who's not a Christian but if your purpose in dating is really to develop this intimate relationship you really would be wiser to stick to dating Christians because you tend to marry the people you date and missionary dating is a really bad idea it really is right If you're not to be unequally yoked, I do think that matters. And you might say, well, that just seems silly or even seems like kind of um, prideful or, you know, like, aren't these other people good people? Yes, absolutely. But if you really are a Christian, then the thing that is the most important at the center of your life, you wanna be able to share that with this person you're gonna share your life with. And um, I I think you you would be wise to be careful about that. Um, I also, though, think it's, I said this last week, but I'll just say it again. It's difficult to do real conflict, good conflict, in a dating relationship. I do think, you know, everybody asks like, have you had your first fight yet? You know, we always ask that in premarital counseling, and we're always a little nervous when they haven't yet had their first fight and they want to get married. But I, I do think there is something about if you've been dating for a while, to maybe even say to one another, let's not break up over one bad fight you know if we get in a really bad fight that spirals out of control maybe we put the brakes on it and step away Um, because sometimes things can just spiral out of control and if you really have like invested time and really feel like you're growing close together i'd hate to see it come crashing down relationships are hard and i'd hate to see it come crashing down when you just need to kind of back up and take a pause and consider what's going on right it's hard to do conflict in a dating relationship because there's a sort of inherent insecurity to that relationship that's different than marriage. And if you do break up, just like marriage is for more than just two, dating is for more than just two, it affects your whole community and so do breakups. So please understand that how you handle things after a breakup has implications for your friends and your whole community, and in your sadness, You still must honor God in the way you talk and act toward the other person. Along this line, be careful how you encourage people in their post-breakup state. It's very rare to find a friend who's wise enough to say, you know, you really were at fault. And not just to take your back. Parents are bad at this too. It is, I'm, I'm telling you. like It's hard to find somebody that will say, you know, you really had a big part to play in that. Comfort, but don't flatter people. Point them to Jesus. Don't just say, oh, he's a jerk. And, you know. and maybe he was, but it's never that simple. It's always more complicated. So be careful how you encourage one another and be careful how you demonize one another. I think we hate to live with messiness and so when things end, sometimes it's easier to almost like rewrite the story as like all bad or all you know, good. It just makes it easier sometimes. I don't think it's very honest. And I think the grieving process requires you to be honest. Um, well, what do you do if you get asked out and you don't wanna go out? Remember I said this last week, there's probably as many different answers in this room as people who would have an opinion about this. Some people I know think it's easier to go out one time to let the person down easier. Sometimes that gives false hope, especially if you don't communicate with actual words and you just hope that they'll get the hint. They may not. Uh, On the other hand, some aren't gonna go out at all with anybody unless they know that they wanna date the person or even know that they might marry the person. That's maybe not the best approach in all cases either. So I don't have a good answer for you, but I just know that you should talk about it and be forthright as much as you can and not just hope that people get the hint. Because when you hope that people get the hint, they tend to misunderstand and then people get their feelings hurt even more. It's my, that's been my experience. But remember, our identity is in Christ and not whether or not we have dates. Now, I don't say that easily. I, I, didn't, like, I didn't get even... Wendy's the first girl that ever like went out with me more than once you know or twice really yeah and I was what 32 so I'm not quite sure what you're uh, you're clapping for you know anyway right. what what about those who've done things they're ashamed of I'll talk about this again when we talk about sex Um, I remember after doing this talk once, somebody asked me what I thought about damaged goods theology, and I almost threw up in my mouth. Like, I just have never, I'd never heard of that. I thought, how cruel is that? Like, who isn't damaged goods, right? Don't we sing that hymn, bruised and broken by the fall? We've all been bruised and broken by the fall, right? None of us comes to any relationship without baggage. But our righteousness, our beauty, is secured by the beauty of Christ, credited to our account in justification. And uh, I think that's important. What about physical boundaries? Well, again, there are some clear boundaries in scripture on this. Um, You know, whenever people ask me about God's will, sometimes if I'm in a snarky mood, I say, well, Paul says to the Thessalonians, flee sexual immorality for this is God's will for your life. When you've got that down, come back, I'll give you some more. That's like really clear right? You want to know God's will for your life? There it is, black and white. Um, When it comes to this, too, um, no sex outside of marriage, right? Like the Bible's really clear on that, uses different words to explain it. I know there's different people on YouTube that try to explain away some of these words. It's not true. Sex outside of marriage, uh, and I believe the Bible clearly teaches one man, one woman, marriage is not appropriate in, in God's eyes proverbs five eighteen also talks about this and talks about how you should delight in the breasts of your wife that means not other people's breasts right so there are some clear places in the bible that speak about this all right and the bible isn't embarrassed by that stuff i hear snickers the bible god never snickers around that stuff he just doesn't um, but i whenever somebody asks me this question about how far is too far I, I almost always am like a little sad that they're not asking the right question because the real question is what is the purpose of sexual intimacy of all kinds whether it's holding hands or kissing what's the purpose what are you intending to communicate I believe the Bible's pretty clear that the purpose of sexual intimacy is a way for you to say with your bodies what you say with your words I belong to you that's what it's supposed to say And when we use it to say something else, things get really confusing, right? Does that mean that you shouldn't kiss somebody until you're married? I'm not saying that, but I should think there should be some intentionality. Again, like Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let there be consistency in what you're saying, even how you've defined this relationship, and what you're saying with your body. They should be commiserate. I think even low-grade stuff like kissing should have intentionality. And I also have known um, from experience and from lots of relationships that I've seen over the years that when you start kissing all the time, it just has a way of being a shortcut to intimacy. And sometimes getting to know one another takes a backseat. Be careful of that. Careful of that. Uh, you also need to be careful of manipulation and inappropriate power dynamics. A dating or a sexual relationship that's happening in secret is often hidden for a reason. Don't let shame and guilt keep you from getting help. I mean that, serious. Belmont has a Title IX office for a good reason. And it gets used a lot. And it needs to be. Right? Probably more than it does get used. When should you say I love you? I mean, again, does the Bible say this? No, but here's my, my thought. I think you need to first ask yourself why you want to say it. Again, it's that principle, let your yes be an yes and your no be no. You should be thinking through why you do what you do, not just meaningless words. It shouldn't be manipulative, basically trying to see if the other person will say it too, so you feel more confident. It shouldn't be something you say so you feel justified into moving into a physical relationship without a real commitment. It should not merely be an expression of your feelings at the moment. You know, this is the reason why I don't usually, I don't think I've ever let somebody write their own vows at a wedding I've done, because nobody does that. They don't actually write vows. They write a statement of how they're feeling. And marriage is not based on how you're feeling at the moment, it's based on vows that you take before God and these witnesses, and that you ask him to help you to keep. So, your feelings at the moment are not the reason to say it either. Jesus, again, says, don't let your yes be yes, let your no be No, don't use words lightly. What about couples praying together? You know, I have some friends, I, I, don't, I don't say this, but I've had friends that say the couple that prays together sleeps together. Um, have you ever heard that? Yeah. Well, I, I will say there's something about... Intimacy in one dimension of your relationship, intimacy in one dimension of your relationship often bleeds over into other areas. So you should be wise and you should be careful about that, I think. Um, Don't be naive about it, right? It is appropriate to guard your heart in a dating relationship. Your vulnerability should correspond to the level of commitment and the real commitment is marriage, right? Um, I only got a couple more here. You got time for a couple more? How do we feel, how do we deal with the undefined hanging out that goes on? I mean, here's what I mean by this. People that say they're not dating, but it's obviously that they kind of are. That's often an opportunity for somebody to get really hurt, and a time when probably people need to talk. But also, if you say, like, I'm not going to date you, but then you basically are hanging out with them all the time like you are dating, then that's not probably a good thing. You need to, if you make a decision, you need to bear the consequences of that decision and not sort of have your cake and eat it too. And that goes both ways, guys and girls, I think. Um, How about uh, what should you expect in dating a Christian who's still a sinner and how can you discern whether you should marry them? I'll talk about this more when we talk about marriage, but I think I mentioned this last week, and I'll I'll mention it again. You want to look for somebody who's repentant, for someone who can see your sin and also encourage you in the gospel to repent. Somebody who envisions your glory, but is not naive about your fault. You don't want somebody that says, don't ever change, right? Because Jesus doesn't look at you that way. He loves you so much that he would never let you stay how you are. And again, if we're groaning for Christ to be formed in somebody, I think marriage is when you feel implicated in how God is going to make this person more beautiful in Christ. And you feel like you've been gifted or called in a way that it seems that, that God has given you an ability to help be part of that. And even maybe a sense of woe is me if I'm not part of that. I would feel almost disobedient to God. Now of course it has to be, two people have to agree on that, you know. You can't be like, I am convinced. Woe is me if I don't love you to the end of my days. And they're like, yeah, I don't see that. Then you gotta, you gotta respect that, of course. Um, but anyway, two more last little things. Somebody asked this question. Actually, this is the last question. How will you know when you're ready to date? That's a great question. I, I think you should be careful about dating right after a breakup or trauma because the potential for false intimacy around those times is very strong. So be careful. But in general, I don't think anybody's ready in the sense that they don't need daily grace. Right. And I think, you, you know, I'm more inclined to encourage people to try it because it probably will call, cause you to reach out and cry out to God for help. So that's usually a good thing. So, you know, like that C.S. Lewis quote we've, we've mentioned several times in the series, the only way where you can be safe from your heart being broken is hell if you're actually in relationships with people, real relationships with people, you can get hurt, you can get disappointed. And so I I don't think you sort of reach like a certain level of now I've finally got it together, but there also may be, like I said, some trauma stuff that you need to work through that may be really kind of dogging all your relationships. And um, if you need help kind of thinking through that, talk to me, talk to Wendy, talk to one of the interns. We'd love to help you kind of discern that sort of thing. Um, the good thing is you know you guys aren't in middle school. I'm not sure middle school kids need a date But of course my middle school boy did and then it was like when he was like hey there goes your theory You know what are you gonna do and now they're probably gonna get married, so I guess it worked out <laughs> But because it was middle school he did break up with her one day when he came home He'd left his phone at home and got there and had 84 texts from her and so he had to break up with her You know, but that was eighth grade right so anyway They got better their relationship got better that's all i'm gonna say um so but in college i feel like why not you're ready to try it i will say this you know in college there's almost a certain safety net because you're like wendy and i how long we date four months like when you're out of college and you're a little older there's less like roadblocks and if the relationship goes well like things can happen pretty quickly um not as quickly as There was a guy that did the college ministry before I did, not with RUF exactly, but at the church I was working at, and they went on a mission trip, um, my friends Mark and Lori, and they came back from the mission trip and had a long talk, and at the end of it, they were engaged. (laughs) So that does happen. And then they got pregnant on their honeymoon. So I I tell people that's like, you couldn't do things any quicker in the right order. You know? (laughs) So, but generally, one of the good things about college or even high school is you can kind of try, try out relationships, but you're probably not going to get married in, t- in four months, probably. That can be actually helpful, right? Anyway, I, that's all I got. Um, and let me pray, and then we'll sing the last song.